G'day, this is Mark Pesci, and welcome to episode 19 of series seven of This Week in Startups Australia. Scaling is the hardest task facing the startup entrepreneur. It is harder than getting started. It is harder than getting to an MVP. It is harder than getting investment. Scaling is hard. But there are any number of startups who have already been on Twista who have scaled successfully, including Canva, Envato, Catapult, and Airtasker. What can we learn from their successes in scaling? That's our theme for series seven. Now in this episode, recorded live at UTS Startups in Sydney, we sit down in conversation with two entrepreneurs, each working hard to scale their rapidly growing businesses. We're at the coal face of scale on this special live episode of This Week in Startups Australia. This Week in Startups Australia is sponsored by the University of Technology Sydney, driving the next generation of entrepreneurs. UTS is equipping a new breed of startup founders by inspiring students to launch their own ventures and build the foundation for a successful career. To find out more about entrepreneurship at UTS and the UTS Startups Program, go to startups.uts.edu.au. This Week in Startups Australia is also sponsored by Pitney Bowes. Are you a small business looking to streamline costs on shipping and postage? Simplify and save with SendPro Plus from Pitney Bowes and receive a $200 credit toward your parcel shipping costs. Terms and conditions apply. Visit them online at pitneybowes.com slash au slash twista. One of the first startup events that I can remember attending in Sydney was a startup weekend hackathon. I think it was in 2010, I can't remember exactly. It was one of the first that had been held here. It was held over at ATP, Australia Technology Park. I was invited over because I was a judge in the finals. One of those companies really impressed me because they'd prototyped a sharing platform for educators and students. And it seemed just the thing. I was all about sharing at that point. And they won the competition. They turned the idea into a startup. And it went forward for about a year. And then, well, it's hard. Startups are hard. Education is a hard market for a startup most of the time. But our first guest on Twista is out to make a liar of me. Sam Clark 
is the co-founder and CEO of Clipboard. Welcome to Twister, Sam. Thanks for having me on, Mark. All right, so what are you doing? What is Clipboard? Yeah, so Clipboard was born out of a large degree of personal frustration. So my co-founder, Ed, and I, when we finished school, we did a lot of basketball coaching at our old high school. And we both had technology backgrounds and we're doing technology-based degrees. And we couldn't believe the amount of work, manual, crappy, administrative work that was required to run the sport and activity programs at this school. And so we looked around to a few other schools who you know, were doing similar programs and found that these problems were prevalent across almost all of them. So everyone was doing basically paper-based work? It hadn't changed in 30 years. Yeah. These critical activities that they run that really, especially for independent schools, the primary reason why you would choose to send your child to this school over that school is maybe the quality of their sport program or their activities that they run. Because they can't differentiate on the curriculum itself. That's mandated by the government. Right. But they can offer karate or jujitsu you know, jiu or, you know, Play-Doh castle building, whatever the, you know, they want to do. And we couldn't believe the amount of manual work that was required to do that. Right. And some of the problems that were occurring were... Firstly, schools weren't meeting their duty of care requirements under law to their students. That's like the biggest thing that a school needs to do, and they just weren't. In what sense? Well, the primary one was uh, a student would, you know, spray, you know break their, sprain their ankle right. or uh, break their leg playing basketball, and we'd write it down on a piece of paper, and we'd be off-site, and so we would be expected to write down that injury on a piece of paper and bring it back to the school, you know, and, and that wouldn't happen till right. at least Monday. And in most cases, it didn't happen at all. Right. So if the school was to get sued by the parent or be forced to show some record of the injury of that student that was in their care at the time of that injury, they wouldn't be able to do that. Okay. The other thing was all schools are required by law to have an accurate record of attendance at their, you know, at their you know, games and their trainings and uh, their activities, and they just didn't have that. It was all paper-based. And so schools were falling short in their duty of care because of the amount of manual work. They were wasting dozens and dozens of hours on spreadsheets or pieces of paper every week, and they were wasting a lot of money. And they couldn't communicate with parents. Parents are paying all this money for their students to participate in these activities, they couldn't communicate with parents to tell them where they needed to be and at what time, which was a critical failure. And you know, all the parents that we've spoken with have said that that's a huge pain point for them, not knowing where they need to be. And then they couldn't report on the quality, the, I suppose, ROI mm. of these programs as well. Now, schools, especially the you know, independent and private schools, they'll spend millions of dollars a year on their extracurricular programs. Right. They'll also spend a lot of money on their curriculum, you know, right? the English, the maths, geography, the classes. But in the classes, they'll be able to tell a parent that, hey, you're spending all this money to send your kid to this school, and we can see that you know, your student has improved in these areas against a predefined rubric. In sports, for example, parents are paying a lot of money for mm. their kids to you know, partake in these activities, but the school has no idea how that child is going. They have no way to provide reports to the parents to say, you're investing this money and I can see that your student's improving. So basically what you're describing then is that all these extracurricular activities are sort of a black box, right? That yeah. Money gets thrown in, yeah. students fall into them and then nothing is known about what happens. It's just, it's a mystery box, exactly. <laughs> all right. Okay, exactly. so that, that sounds to me like 
the parents are dealing with this because they don't necessarily know where the kids have to go. The kids are dealing with this because they aren't allowed to track their own performance. Yeah. And then the school is dealing with this because the school has no idea what's actually happening. That's a big problem. Exactly, exactly. And as we looked around schools, whether it was uh, private schools or even public schools and schools all across the world, basically every school has this problem. Okay. Because every school offers some degree of extracurricular activities. Right. It's the value add that they can provide as an institution. And so we thought these were really critical problems that needed to be solved. And so that's where Clipboard came in. And Clipboard is what we're calling an extracurricular management system, mm -hmm. an EMS, the third category of critical ed tech systems right, that every school needs. Because we have learning management systems, right? That's Blackboard and e exactly. the other stuff, right? And so there's sort of a tryout of systems that uh, we believe a school needs. Every school needs a student management system. Right. They're essentially mandated by law that they need to have one. Right that manages the student data. Then you've got a learning management system, an LMS, which manages the curriculum. You've got Blackboard, you've right. got uh, Canvas, That's you've right. got Sector is a big one in schools, Schoolbox. But then as you go to the you know, bottom third of that triangle, as you said, there's literally a black box, which is extracurricular. You've got the curricular management system, mm -hmm. but the extracurricular space is just a black hole that kids fall into when the bell rings and you know, they have no way to get out. So this is also, this sounds like in terms of this new field of category definition, yeah. right? That you've actually identified a category where there aren't products yet. So that means exactly. you can become the defining example of a product. We want to be what Salesforce is to CRM, Clipboard is to EMS. Okay. Yeah. All right, which is concise and very clear, but also then allows you to say this is what EMSE is. So, so exactly. in that sense, then, when you go into a school, I mean, you, you, how long did it take you to get to sort of an MVP with the product? So we've been working on it for about three years. Right. Uh, we were still working at our old school when we started building this, and we were actually users of the product ourselves as basketball coaches. <laughs> and so, so you, were something... you were dog fooding. You were just yeah. trying it as it was going. Exactly. And, you know, we'd be able to talk to other people at the school who are also using the product and, you know, ask them how they're going. They wouldn't necessarily know that we were the guys that built it. Right. And they'd give us their honest feedback, sometimes good, sometimes bad. Then I'd be like, bro, you know, I built that, right? <laughs> okay. So and that really helped. That, that enabled us to feel firsthand what we needed to build, mm. understand, understand the problems that the product still didn't solve, and go from there. And So yeah. did you find that you had product market fit from the beginning, or was it something that took some time to evolve into? Yeah, we, we didn't have product market fit from the beginning. Where we started was essentially casual employment software yeah. for schools. We, we were no better than deputy, really. It was basically deputy for schools. It did... For really big private schools, mm -hmm. it did time sheeting and you know, casual employment, okay. uh, administrative work. That didn't help us get into other schools, right. especially the smaller ones that don't have a huge workforce of casual staff. And so where we've been over the last two years is broadening the scope of the product such that we're not, an, not a casual employment platform for schools, we're an extracurricular management system that helps them manage everything they do outside the classroom. So at what point did you notice that you started to get traction with more than just the big schools where you're helping them mm -hmm. essentially with a personnel problem, yep. but you're helping the smaller schools with this actual EMS problem that you've identified? It was really just this year. It was this year. So up until January, we had six schools. So what we did last year is we essentially went around Sydney and gave... 
all the schools that would accept the offer free access for, for 12 months for the entire year just because we wanted to work really closely with them to get it off the ground mm -hmm. and we couldn't charge them huge sums of money that we wanted to just yet. So you got six schools to do that? We got six schools to All do right. that last year. One of which was paying, which was our old high school, but the other five, they, they were on a, uh, an, uh, on a good deal. And then <laughs> Free is a good deal. Free, yes. free is a very good deal. And then this year we've really started to broaden out the market. So we've now got, ooh, I think we've, yeah, so now we've got at least 35 active schools on the platform in Sydney, Brisbane and Melbourne. And so now what's the model for these schools? Are they paying a subscription or? So it's a, it's a, it's a subscription fee, it's SaaS, but it's slightly different. See, EdTech is a harder market from a billing perspective because unfortunately they don't have credit cards. <laughs> so coming into it, we were like, oh, let's just copy Jira, you know, $5 per user per month and they can just chuck their credit card on. We gave that to our old school and they, they just laughed. Right. And, and so it's been invoicing order. ever you, since. Yeah, yeah. Back? yeah. <laughs> so it's been invoicing. So we preference 12-month 12, 12 uh, contracts. Yep. But some schools prefer to pay on a termly basis, and that's okay as well. So they'll pay upfront for the term. They pay 10% more to do that. Is it, I mean, some of the services that I buy, I can buy in yearly allotments, yep. right? So it's not an unknown thing. But yep. most of the time you think about people buying Netflix or Apple Music yep. or whatever, and they're doing it monthly on their credit cards. So was that, did that change the way that you did the sales and marketing for the product because you were selling to a different kind of payment system? It didn't necessarily change the way we did uh, the sales strategy because ultimately once you get to that buying decision, you're already pretty far into it anyway. Our whole sales strategy though has changed as we've learned more about the education industry mm. and how to effectively sell to them. And then also how to... So share, what, what have you learned? Because this is always the hard thing and particularly if you're selling edutech, so that, mm. other, that other quadrant, right? Mm. It's slow and it's hard. Yeah. So there is a common idea, especially among the VC community, that selling into schools and ed tech is something you want to stay away from precisely because the lead times are so long mm. and it is so hard to sell to them. Mm. And in a lot of traditional, traditional businesses, that is the case. And certainly other companies in a similar space to us, sort of indirect competitors, they do have very slow lead times. And you go on their website and there's really, there's no way to sign up. There's just a form at the top right that you can access and then you can contact us. And I feel like, I feel like people in this industry haven't necessarily had their eyes peeled to what's going on in the world, especially in SaaS. And so we've subverted that model by offering a free tier. Mm -hmm. And we're lucky because there's a lot of stakeholders in the school who can actually sign up and start using our platform straight away. So last week we had, I would say, the biggest school in New South Wales sign up to our platform online to our free version without us doing any sales work at all. They just signed up and now they've got, I think, 24 users. So one user below our free tier actively engaging in the platform. And so adding that free tier has been hugely valuable for us because what that allows us to do is the manager of an activity. So the way it works is you've got your head of sport, the person who runs the department at the school. And then beneath that, you'll have administrators of individual activities mm -hmm. like rowing or chess mm. or debating, whatever it is. And so this model allows that sort of middleman, the manager to sign up to the platform immediately with zero friction 
get started. We've massively worked on reducing the time to value so they can you know, straight away jump in and start receiving value from the system, mm. saving them time. So this is not, in that sense, completely different from Slack's value proposition. It's, ex- it's, ex- it's very similar, Mark. And it worked out really badly for them, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, so we've basically just looked at what the most successful SaaS companies in the world right. are doing and said, why can't we do this in their tech as so, well? So, I mean, but the next question, if I put on my investor hat, is yes. how do you convert those people into mm-hmm. paying customers? Mm-hmm. So w- there's a few things. First of all, we have a customer success manager. We're looking to bring on more who work with the schools and ensure that they're sort of finding value yeah. in the system. We're trying to automate a lot of that, though, to reduce the res- resource allocation we have to give to free-tier schools. But we're, we're okay to do that for a school that's going to convert it, you know, 35K a year, for example. But a lot of it is product-based. So building growth into the product itself, having a great onboarding experience, encouraging them to add more to the system, sending value-affirming emails, all that basic kind of stuff. So to tie this into the, to the meta theme, then yep. what you've done is you've built scaling in the sense of the, the customer experience. You've built that idea of scaling the customer experience into what you're selling. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And that's something we're, we're trying to continue to work on is building especially conversion into the product itself. Mm-hmm. So even simple things like sending value-affirming emails to people who aren't on the platform. So, for example, if the you know, head of uh, chess at a school signs up, we want their boss to be getting emails saying, hey, um, you know, 5,000 text messages were sent to your staff in the last month uh, saving this person that much time or, you know, you're upholding your duty of care 48% more, wh- whatever it is, to, to, the, to the decision maker themselves because you still do need to talk to the decision maker right. in this business. Otherwise, the lead time's a lot longer because you have to wait for the trial to end and then talk to the decision maker. But there's a lot you can do to build leverage points into the product itself. Right. You've been at this three years. How many employees are there now? We're currently a team of eight. Currently a team of eight. We'll probably be a team of 12 in January or February. Which is not, that's just a couple of months away. Yeah. Right. So you're talking about growing the team by 50% in just a few months. Sure. So now that you're seeing the business scale and I, the number of signups that you're getting is growing quickly and your employees, the number of people who are managing all this are growing quickly. What are you learning around what it takes to scale a business into something that's going to be a larger business? Yeah, I've le- learned a lot, definitely. So we've recently gone through the Murity Accelerator program, which has been hugely valuable for us, especially in teaching my co-founder Ed and I Management 101, Mm. how to manage a team that's scaling, how to ensure everyone's aligned. I think the biggest challenge, especially for me personally, as the co-founder this year, has been as we've gone from a team of three to now eight in a period of five months, learning how to keep everyone aligned. So like I I would come in some days and everyone was doing, the dev team, individual members of the dev team and my my growth team, like we'd all be doing different things that were just completely disparate. And I guess I could rationalise how what you're doing there is important. Like that makes some sense, but is it really the most important thing we could be doing right now on a really limited amount of resources? Probably not. But then I felt like, you know, not a very nice person just telling that, you know, telling that employee to just stop working on that. You know, you shouldn't be doing that. And, and so 
we've had to build systems, learn that you, know, you actually need to have processes in place to manage what people are doing before they start doing something that's wrong. So just stuff like adding you know, basic things like you know, adopting Agile and sprints and uh, OKRs and just different, different measures to keep everyone aligned has been really valuable. Now, where do you want to be in terms of both sales and, I guess, staff in 12 months? So we go to October mm-hmm. next year. So we want to have about 150 schools using the platform by t- start of 21. Okay. And that will be, that will be pr- probably f- so 80 or 90 X. in Australia. We want 15, at least 15 in New Zealand, probably... 20 international schools as well. We're starting to talk to some international schools. International schools are about a $200 million market. Mm-hmm. There's 9,600 English-speaking international schools in the world. The easiest ones to start with are the Australian international schools in Hong Kong, Singapore, and throughout mm-hmm. Asia. Mm-hmm. But all international schools take extracurricular activities extremely seriously because if you live in Hong Kong and you go to an international school, or in a, you know, a British international school. You don't speak the local language, so you can't participate in any, in any clubs yeah. in Hong Kong. You have to participate through the school. So it's all centralised at the school. And so they arguably have a much larger extracurricular program than anywhere in England or Australia. But I just watched you scale internationally without missing a beat. So how, do you think you're going to be able to do that? Do you think you're just going to be able to go, here we go, here's our international push? It's not going to be easy. <laughs> it's not going to be easy. But no, that's definitely what we're planning to do. Right. And so you'll scale first here and then scale locally in Asia and then scale globally? Yeah, that's definitely the plan. I think New Zealand is the easiest first market for us to address. Mm-hmm. We're actually thinking about doing a campaign there in a couple of weeks just because it's essentially an extension of a state of Australia. <laughs> oh, to all the Kiwi listeners, we apologize for that. In terms of geography, it's no different selling to a school in Auckland than it is selling to a school in Perth. So that's our logic on that. Massive respect to the Kiwis. <laughs> but the next market then is you know, international schools in Asia. We think Canada is going to be big for us because there's a lot of similar schools in Canada and then obviously the UK as well. America is a bit of an unknown because the schooling system is quite different, yeah. but there's about 30,000 private schools in the US, so we definitely will be investigating that market. And every one of them have exactly the same black hole that yeah. you are <laughs> now colonizing. Sam, thank you very much for joining us on This Week in Australia. Thanks so much, Mark. It was great to be here. You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia live special from UTS Startups. We will be right back. Startups are crucial to the economy and future of work in Australia. That's why entrepreneurship is at the heart of the student experience at the University of Technology, Sydney. Through UTS Startups, students are turning their ideas into businesses, solving problems, and creating new jobs. UTS Startups is now home to more than 300 student-launched startups, powering a hugely diverse entrepreneurial community of 700 people. Working side-by-side with industry partners, UTS connects thousands of talented students to the startup ecosystem through their startup internship program. 
The UTS inner city campus is also uniquely positioned in Sydney's thriving tech precinct to be the catalyst for the startup community. Join them on their journey building Australia's largest community of student entrepreneurs. Go to startups.uts.edu.au to find out more. The law is important. It separates civilization from the abyss of the war of all against all. But civilization doesn't come cheap. I remember my first proper meeting with a lawyer. This is when I had a startup in San Francisco in the early 1990s. A lawyer cost $300 an hour, and my business partner suggested that at one of these meetings, he would simply carry in a stack of $5 notes and hand them to the attorney once a minute. Every minute. And you put it that way, it sounds like a lot. But you can't do without legal advice, not if you want justice. That's how it works. So how do we square the need for justice with the cost of law? And that's a question that our next guest is working very hard to answer. Carly Stebbing is the founder of Resolution 123. Welcome, Carly. Hi, Mark. So tell us about Resolution 123. How are you making the law accessible and affordable? So Resolution 123 is an employment law firm for the average Australian. And the way that we're making uh, the law accessible is by partnering technology with flexible work practices uh, to remove the obstacles to justice. So in, in our view, the obstacles to justice are law has just become too expensive for the average person. Um, there's, a, there's a big gap between the average person, if they've got an employment law problem, by way of example, they have a few options. If they're a member of a union, increasingly Australians aren't, they might go there. Uh, if they are, are eligible for legal aid, they might try there, but not many people are. But legal aid has a sort of has a, a threshold. salary cap, right? Yeah, they have a threshold. So I think they won't assist people earning around over $60,000. The average Australian earns $85,000 a year. Uh, you've got your community legal centres. They cap out at the average Australian salary at 85000 and are just completely over capacity in any event. So you'd be lucky to get an appointment with them. And then from there, you have to make the big leap to what we call trad law, traditional law. Um, and, and again, this is where I'm handing a lawyer a $5 note every couple of that seconds. That is where you're handing much more than $5 yes. every, every, every minute yes. um, now. So, for example, if you look at, you know, the best applicant law firms in the country would be the likes of, you know, Morris Blackburn um, and, and, and so on, Turner Freeman, uh, Slater and Gordon. Uh, the reality is that even they have become completely out of reach for the average person. So to have a one-hour consult with most of them will cost you in excess of $700 before you even know whether or not you might be eligible to commence a claim. So after many years working in employment law on the other side of the fence for the employers, uh, I was increasingly frustrated by the fact that it really shouldn't be that difficult for the average person to, in the first place, just get a little bit of information about 
what we like to say, a prima facie case. So, you know, do, most people, their first question is just, do you think I have a claim? Uh, and then they want that question answered before they're prepared to take the next step. Because we know some of the obstacles to justice aren't just the cost of justice, it's that it's stressful, you don't know where to get the information from. And so, what we did was, um, in founding Resolution 123, we developed a web application that basically assists people, takes you through a sophisticated mind map. In essence, it's a virtual consult with me. So I've taken 13 years of employment law experience and I've put it into a web application so that you can jump online and you can check in the first instance, have that question answered. Do, you, do I have a claim? Do I have an unfair dismissal? Do I have a general protections? Do I have a discrimination have claim? Have I been unpaid by George Columbaris? Have I been underpaid by George Columbaris? And the answer will most likely be yes. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so, so that's, what, that's one way we're doing it. All right. Okay, so you have this idea that you're taking what you do and you're, you're developing an algorithmic representation of that. You're taking people through the mind map, through, through, the, through the process here. How does that then reduce costs? So it does a couple of things in terms of both reducing costs and uh, opening up access to justice. Um, the, in effect, what we've done is just we've, we've automated the repetitive task. So when when someone first com comes to you, there are a series of they want to tell their story. But as they're telling their story, as a lawyer, we're sitting there and we're ticking off boxes in our heads. And if they don't answer the question that we've got, then we'll ask them that question. Up, oh, that takes them off of, into this, you know, choose your own adventure over here. Um, and so, in the first place, we've automated that process. So if you do our web application the process that we will take you through would be the equivalent of the $700 phone consult or in-person meeting that you might have at the first instance with a traditional law firm. So that's the first step of making it more um, accessible and more affordable to the average person. You've eliminated that first step requirement. And what it does for the lawyer is it means that we then get a, a brief that is in front of us that we now know all of the critical information so we can move straight to the next step, which is determining the prospects of success, which is the next question the person has. The first question is, do you have a claim? Yes. And what are the prospects of success of the claim? That's the bit that I don't think technology has quite gotten us to yet in terms of the legal profession. We can automate the repetitive tasks, but that consideration mode where you have to go in and look at all of the different criteria and factors, um, you know, that's the piece where you then step into lawyer mode and you go in and consider all of those things and you can deliver that advice. But the fact that the person didn't have to pay for the first piece of analysis reduces the price. The fact that we work flexibly, so we work from home or from the co-working space, means we don't have the same overheads as others. Uh, and in removing those typical overheads of a, of a traditional law firm, uh, offering virtual consults and the like, uh, we can reduce that overall cost to proceed with the legal matter. Okay, so I understand, I think, the basics of the business model. How then are you generating a client list? How do clients actually know how to find you to be able to use this service? Because I would think most people would think, I'm I'm not poor enough to get legal aid and I don't have enough money to take on George Columbaris, so I'm just going to suck it up. So... 
through a number of different ways. We've got some brilliant partners. So uh, we partner with Legal Vision, for example. So um, they are a great new law firm, mainly operating in corporate commercial space, and they act for uh, businesses. So uh, if they get inquiries, they send them to us. We partner with the Fair Work Commission with an, um, um, a unit called the Workplace Advice Service. Mm-hmm. Uh, so people contact them, and then they get in touch with us, and then we're able to assist people that way. So if people go to the Fair Work Commission and say, I think I have a claim... Mm. They would then say, you need to go talk to Carly because Carly They'll then put them in touch with the Workplace Advice Service. Right. And then the Workplace Advice Service will check eligibility, which is just basically that you're an employee, that you're not a member of a union and that uh, you've been dismissed or or being bullied at work. And they will then find the relevant partner. So, you know, we're listed as someone that will assist employees in that bracket. Um, They are then contacted they are put in contact with us and then we assist the person with an initial free consult and then if the matter needs to proceed, we give them an upfront fixed fee quote. So that's the other way that we make it accessible to people is that there's none of this handing over every six-minute increment. Um, from the outset, we scope the work and we set Five-minute increment, by the way. Yeah, five-minute <laughs> increment. Yes. We, um, yeah, we, we scope the work from the outset and we set an upfront fixed fee based on what we think the person can afford yep. and what we think the value proposition is to them. So they understand that and that's then charged in equal instalments so the person knows always what's sort of coming up so there's none of those scary surprises about engaging a lawyer. So this is completely different from the way a traditional law, a trad law firm operates. How does that then affect the way – are are you constructed as a – because most law firms are partnerships – is is resolution one two three a partnership? Is it something else? Is it we're an incorporated legal practice, so we're just a proprietary limited company. Okay, yeah. all right. I'm the sole director. So so then so then it is it's fundamentally different. So is it a law firm? Is it a technology business? It seems to sit in this really interesting new law. middle ground. It's new law. So it's um it you know when you're in when you're in the space. Law firms now, most at least most people that would identify as new law practitioners will say that there's two types of firms. There's trad law, which is just what everyone expects of lawyers, right. and then there's new law. New law is, we say, a completely client-centric approach. So we, in, at least in my case, I, start, I started with the why. Why would I even do this? Why would I introduce this model in the first place? Is there a genuine problem to be solved? Yes, there's a missing middle in Australia yeah. of people that can't afford legal services yep. but need employment law services. Yep. Um, so yes, there is a problem. Is there a solution to it? Yes, there's a solution by using automation of repetitive tasks and flexible work combined. Um, and offering people upfront fixed fees that are affordable to them based on value propositions to them. So everything that we do is centred around the client experience. And in terms of people being able to find us, it comes through those referral channels, through the partners, and it also comes through, you know, traditional um, means of going to market. So social media, uh, you know, there's a big concentration at the moment around our SEO, Mm -hmm. um, getting as much content out there as we can to increase that and share that with our partners and so on. So... If you're having now this middle model that's servicing an unserviced segment and you're actually building the sales and the marketing channels in there, but you're right now focusing on basically employment law, mm-hmm. but there's that's by your own choice, right? Yeah. Because in fact, most of the law that people would encounter is probably 
partially automatable in exactly the same way resolution Absolutely. one, two, three? So are you going to then, do you have your eye on any other low-hanging fruit? So, yes, there's, I, I continue to consider the expansion of services, for example, into the most common other, we're, you know, we're business to consumer. So, the other most commonly experienced issues. So, for example, wills and estate, um, family law, yep. um, consumer law. Um, the, the challenge, I think, is, as with any business, we have a niche specialty. Mm. Employment law is a particular problem. It's widely experienced in the community mm-hmm. and there's a massive market for it in Australia and internationally. So, at the moment, my preference would be to see better market saturation in the employment law before I start spreading myself too thin. <laughs> but this is, this is the classic question that, that's... Uh, for any entrepreneurs, do you simply grow your existing market or do you find parallel aligned markets and mm. grow into it? So your inclination then is to lean into what you already know to do well. But there's only one of you. So how much scale can you bring to this business? Because the law doesn't scale in the same way that, say, education <laughs> Sadly, does. Sadly, it does not. <laughs> so, but then... But then your experience of how you scale your business is going to be very different than, say, it Sam's is. was. Yeah. How do you scale your business? Okay, so um, I'm the sole director, but we have a team of five. Um, so there's four lawyers and operations, head of operations. And so at the moment, the way we scale, you're absolutely right. The, the way that law firms traditionally scale is you get to what we call, we say we're at capacity, so we can't, we can't perform any more work in a day. And so you hire another lawyer and that means that revenue, you know, sorry, um, profit slumps uh, dramatically while you grow back up again and then you grow and then, you know, it, but the trouble is that you, the scaling in law firms traditionally has just been this margin sort of relatively stays the same. What we're trying to do to change that is that, you know, you asked Sam before around um, where he saw himself in a year. The where I see myself and my team in a, in a year is we probably have ideally we'd have another senior lawyer on and we might have another graduate lawyer on, um, but in fact I don't necessarily want to see the number of lawyers have to increase. Rather, I'd like to see the way that we deliver services change for our clients. So, so you have to disrupt yourselves, then you have yeah. to take your existing processes yeah. and continue to refine Absolutely. them to make them tighter more automated yes further automate them add on to the current automation that we have so at the moment you know we, we automate them to the point of saying yes you've got this particular type of claim so the next series of automation is the automation of the documentation mm-hmm. associated with that claim and then accompanied by um my view is that a lot of what we do could be delivered by way of a series of master classes around you know what is an unfair dismissal and if you were going to self-represent yourself how would you do that? Um, you know, you're concerned about your restraint of trade with your employer and whether or not you can go and start this startup over here or join this competitor over here, explaining that. Because a lot of the explanation around those things, around your contract of employment, around your rights to flexible work is pretty generic. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, once you understand the generic proposition you can probably see how it can be tailored to your circumstances. So, in an in an ideal way, the way that we will scale is entirely different than the way that law firms would traditionally have scaled, and that is by adding online legal services products. Is there a sense that people want the physical presence of the lawyer and they're going to get 
uncomfortable or nervous if there isn't a lot of that hand-holding? Or are people going to be satisfied that there's not hand-holding because they're going to be able to afford it? So I think there's a, there's a couple of interesting observations there. One is I thought this web app was just the most brilliant idea. And um, turns out a lot of people just want to tell their story yeah. uh, to a human. Yeah. And so we can say to them, you know, here's this like, here's this link. And if you go through this link, you're going to find all of this out. And they'd be like, yeah, no, but I just actually, I really just want to tell you what's going on. So yes, absolutely. There's the human element to the practice of law. And that's, um, you know, that's something that we have to be conscious of. But equally, we have to balance this idea around, um, well, some people will have to make a decision. Yes, they might like to go and sit in we're chatting earlier, but they might like to go and sit in the Harbourview plush office and have their hand held and a nice cup of coffee made and brought to them. Um, but if the, that's the difference of actually being able to proceed with your claim or not, is getting some online virtual assistance versus that experience, um, then I think that people ultimately have to make a decision about whether or not they want to pursue justice or... Um, and if they do want to pursue justice, whether they're prepared to compromise on the way that that justice is delivered to them. And I think that the fact that our firm has gotten to where it has so quickly indicates people are prepared to compromise on those niceties that they've otherwise experienced from law firms because they don't want to pay for the six-minute increments. And it could very well be that where you're taking us is simply going to be the face of the legal profession. So I was at an NAB summit and I was told that there's a new piece of software that will turn out a statement of uh, advice, financial advisor's statement, in six seconds based on some algorithms. And the one of the folks who was a financial advisor on the panel said, yes, it's going to be boutique advice for the rich and robo-advice for everyone else. But at least everyone else is getting advice. And is that kind of the world that we're seeing where there's going to be for the people who can afford the waterfront suite, the Barangaroo mm. law? And I've been in those, those suites, and you're right, $700, $800 an hour versus people who simply want access and equity that are, are, they're not going to see it as a loss. I think, that, I think that that's partially true. I think what we would like to do is see the combination the more we can commoditize legal services and break them down into packages of, okay, well, the technology and the automation can do this part of it. They, it can vet your claim and it can complete the documentation for you. But, and you might then be, that might be accompanied by a video, which is me explaining to you what the next steps are going to look like if you go into this self-represented. And then you may very well make the decision after going through that process that, you need you you you're only going to proceed if you've got the lawyer there holding your hand and that's fine because resolution 123 does that too so we will the idea is we break it down into as many bite-sized chunks as possible so people can kind of opt in and out as they're comfortable automating the things that don't need to be done by somebody sitting there billing you by the six-minute increment. Um, but that way they can call in the assistance when they need to. And that's not necessarily – that doesn't necessarily mean huge prices and only for the rich. But I think it means people making an informed choice about when they tap into personalised legal service and when they're prepared to accept the automations.
So it really is about opening up the choice rather than saying this is the only choice for the law. It's like actually that's one choice and then here's a whole other set. I think so. I don't think – yeah, I think the idea that there's those only those two options, you know, robo-advice or boutique advice for the rich I think is putting it too dramatically. I think there's a lot of grey area in there and a lot of opportunity for people that are prepared to – think outside of the box about how people might be prepared to accept the delivery of their legal services. And in that grey area, a huge amount of space for resolution one, two, three That's right. to grow. Everyone, let's thank Carly Stebbing. You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia, live special from UTS Startups. I'll be right back with some final thoughts. Are you a small business or small e-tailer looking for better ways to streamline costs and improve efficiency? Introducing SendPro Plus from Pitney Bowes, the complete office sending solution that makes it easy for small businesses and e-tailers to consistently choose the right sending option for each parcel or letter. SendPro Plus provides shipping options and prices, prints labels, and tracks parcels. An integrated, accurate scale helps assign the correct parcel label or postage. SendPro Plus makes sending simple with automatic rate updates and a shared address book across available carriers. Pitney Bros brings shipping, mailing, and tracking capabilities to businesses looking to simplify their shipping and mailing while reducing costs. Simplify and save with SendPro Plus today and receive a $200 credit toward your parcel shipping costs. Terms and conditions apply. To learn more, visit pitneybows.com slash au slash twista. Scaling is important in every startup's business but scaling is also completely unique to the business. The way a business scales is a reflection of the unique characteristics of that business. No two businesses grow the same way. And you can see from taking a look at Clipboard and from taking a look at Resolution 123, they're both strong startups, but they're growing out of different soil. And the way they need to think about what scale is is not one size fits all. It's a reflection of how that business needs to grow to meet the needs of its customers, to meet the needs of its investors, and to meet the needs of its founders. And so, although the entire theme of Series 7 has been about scale, what we've been learning as we get further and further into this is that scale, while it's important, is also incredibly specific. It doesn't mean that you can't learn from people who are scaling. In fact, it means you need to learn as much as you can because you don't know whose lesson in scaling is going to be the one that you need when you need to scale. Big thanks to Twister sponsors UTS Startups and Pitney Bowes. Their support makes our podcast possible. Thanks to Sam Clark and Carly Stebbing for making the time to come onto our show. Thanks to UTS Startups for granting permission to use this recording of our session. Now, thanks to audio engineer Luke Station. Luke edits this podcast. He's the reason it sounds so clean. Check out his YouTube channel under his name, Luke Station. 
Now, last year, we rebuilt and we relaunched our website at twistartupsaus.com. It's got everything. It's got all the shows. It's got all the interviews. It's got all the photos, all the links to all the stories. Check it out at twistartupsaus.com. We'll be back soon with the final episode for Series 7 when we take a look at some of the best contenders for Australia's next unicorn. Until then, this is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening to This Week in Startups Australia.